Hier komen wij in vreemd. Hello, my name's Ros Ward. You're listening to Red Flag Radio, which is being recorded on Aboriginal land. Land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm joined by Liam Ward again. Um, okay. <laughs> hello, Liam. And our special guest for today to talk about a topic which has come kind of back into our minds and into our um, analytical orbit. Uh, which is Australian imperialism and kind of the role of the Australian military um, around the world because of the news recently about the horrific war crimes um, that have been exposed in the Brereton report. And Vanil Kumar, who is joining us back again on Red Flag Radio, welcome back, Vanil. Thanks for having me. Has been doing some research into this area um, and... As the anti-racism officer for the National Union of Students, as a socialist activist and somebody who has had some personal experience kind of uh, um, in relation to Australian imperialism in the Pacific region, do you want to just tell us a bit about your background, Vanille? Well, I was born in Fiji um, and I lived there uh, with my family uh, up until the age of 11. Um, I'm from an, an Indian family, which we'll get into some of the history of that uh, later on. Uh, but my family left Fiji um, after the 2000th coup um, that was carried out by George Spade, and there's been subsequent coups since then. So, um, yeah, so I lived there for the first couple of years of my life. And yeah, kind of now that kind of going back and reading a little bit about kind of the Pacific and some of the history of places like Fiji, um, it kind of like adds a new kind of like context to some of the stuff I you know, kind of knew a little bit about growing on, growing up, but uh, never really quite understood the full magnitude of. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't in a way. Um, and the response to the Australian, um, the response of the Australian government to the recent uh, exposure of the, these barbaric crimes in Afghanistan, I mean, it's been incredible to just see the defence of uh, the Australian military, the fact that they seem to care much more about a piece of like um, photo montage art, I would call it, uh, that was a critique of the Australian military um, from a Chinese artist. And, you know, the response to that compared to um, the kind of brushing under the carpet, the, you know, there's a few bad soldiers, but why punish the whole um, platoon or whatever, you know. So, like, let's just start with some of that, I think. Like, why has the Australian government responded in such a way to what to the rest of us just seems like indefensible crimes? I think war and militarism have always uh, gone hand in hand with a real kind of um, ideological offensive or really like a sort of mythology because I think for most ordinary people, you know, uh, we're not kind of bloodthirsty psychopaths. Like if the government kind of turned around and said like, well, we need to kind of you know, invade the Middle East because we want, um, you know, control for our alliance uh, over that region versus the other um, the other kind of rivals that we have. Or, you know, we need to have control over the Pacific, over the Pacific because we want access to oil in the Timor Sea or if we want, you know, to dominate the markets of certain countries or protect our shipping lanes. And that, you know, requires a whole bunch of, like, you know, violence and destruction for the people who live in these countries. I don't think that would quite fly. So I think mythology... Um, and really kind of imbuing militarism with a sense of nobility uh, is really part and parcel of like what uh, capitalist war machines are kind of all about. So you think about the Anzac legend, the way in which they talk about troops always defending freedom or bringing democracy, or even think about some of the Defense Force ads, which are like, you know, pitching a career in the military um, as, you know, being about you going to some um, third world country and helping to build houses and bring clean drinking water. Um, I think it's about trying to legitimize the role that militaries and um, Western governments can play in this situation. And I think the Brereton report has really called into question that mythology and with it the legitimacy of the Australian military, because how can you maintain that Australia is supposedly a force for good in the world um, if the reality of that involvement um, in other countries is like the murder of civilians and, and children and all sorts of like um, heinous war crimes? And I think that's why 
the government has really been focused much more on damage control than anything else uh, because it recognizes it's finding itself increasingly in a situation where um, it may need to kind of use military intervention um, uh, more um, in the near future. And so I think, yeah, maintaining that mythology is really, really important. So presenting these horrible crimes uh, as, yeah, a few bad apples or, you know, not reflective of the entirety of the military, which when you think about it, all war requires some level of dehumanization of the people who are being invaded and also, you know, like excusing the actions of the of the invaders um, by, you know, valorizing them. And I think, yeah, that also is relevant to the history of the Pacific, which is what we'll be talking about today, because I think part of maintaining this idea that Australia is a force for good in the world is actually like having uh, the real history of Australian imperialism in this region uh, much more kind of uh, buried and kind of mysterious. Mm. And and I think one of the common um, misconceptions or uh, ideas that doesn't get talked about enough is Australia actually... Um, as an imperialist power, and in this region, the key imperialist power in the Pacific region, because I think what's happened um, as part of that not wanting to appear as uh, you know trying to dominate the region, but instead you know being a force for for good and trying to cover over um, the je- the real intentions behind the Australian military's actions. That people are, I think it's convenient for the Australian government to be seen as, you know, maybe just um, having to do what the United States is doing because they're the major, most important power in the world and therefore sort of a little bit like it's not really the Australian government acting here and so they can kind of be one step removed, which is why I think having a clear understanding of Australian imperialism um, is useful. So let's try and give... (laughs) Give a clear explanation of Australian imperialism. Um, I'll leave that to you, though, Vanilla. Yeah, well, I think imperialism is about how the competition that's inherent to capitalism expresses itself um, internationally as the conflict between various states or between various blocks of capital. Um, I think, yeah, capitalism is driven by, um, yeah, uh, capitalists kind of trying to accumulate as much profit as they can, but also uh, they exist in a competitive environment where, you know, even domestically, um, different companies uh, compete against each other. You only need to think about Coles versus Woolies or Apple versus Microsoft, whatever example you want to think of. Um, But I think when different uh, capitalist firms grow to a certain size, they start looking beyond their national borders, for new markets, for cheap uh, resources, for cheap labor, um, yeah, for new opportunities for investment. Um, and uh, But the problem is that individual capitalists and companies typically don't have their own armies to invade foreign soil or to, to, to secure access to these things. Um, so they rely increasingly on their own nation state uh, to try and secure the interests um, uh, that they have uh, in other countries. And this is often termed uh, the national interest, but really it is about the interests of the rich and powerful in one country being projected um, overseas um, in order to yeah secure the things that they uh, that they want in order to increase uh, really increase their power, but also um, not have yeah uh, not have uh, all these things like markets and uh, access to cheap labor and resources uh, be taken up by their rivals. So it really is about a system of global competition. Uh, where different yeah different powers are competing against each other, um, and this doesn't always look like boots on the ground. Uh, that's I think the most uh, obvious and most violent kind of expression of it. But it can also look like you know having trade deals that uh, uh, that benefit Australian businesses compared to um, you know Chinese businesses or businesses from other countries, um, or having yeah particularly uh, uh, useful laws uh, that you know. Um, drive down the conditions of workers in particular countries so that other so that you know Australian capitalists or American capitalists can go in and and uh, use make use of the cheap labor so mm-hmm. I think when you take that definition uh, the United States is clearly an imperialist power it's still the kind of uh, strongest military power that exists in the world but so is China China is also an imperialist power it's also a power um, that tries to use uh, its growing economic and military might uh, to basically uh, increase its influence in the region and to also um, find new opportunities for its uh, capitalist class. And there are then middling level powers, and I think Australia is one of those. Australia is an imperialist power in, in this region. But its own military capacity, I think, has always been limited, and it has always needed uh, to find the backing of a greater imperial power in order to secure its domination in the Pacific. So that's why the Australian ruling class has always been eager to curry favour first with the British and then with the United States um, in the hopes that they will back up Australia if needed 
but to also send a warning to any uh, regional rivals that taking on Australia means taking on a global superpower as well. So the starting point, I think, for us has to be that the Australian ruling class has its own imperialist interests in this region. Because often, yeah, the problem with the argument that like, oh, we just keep getting dragged into Australia, through, into the, the US's wars is that it completely lets our own capitalist class off the hook here in Australia. Um, and it's really these interests uh, that are being served in the Pacific, not the interests of any other power. Mm. And I think the history, um, which we'll go into next, is really useful for um, demonstrating the the strength of all of those arguments. Um, because, you know, Australian ruling class um, um, imperial ambitions have date back to basically um, invasion on this continent, right? So let's start with the early days of um, after in invasion and what was going on or even, yeah, still under British rule, I guess, in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So as you said, it starts kind of very soon after invasion. It's really like the 1800s is the main period of time where um, Australian imperialism in the Pacific really starts coming to its own. It's driven by a few factors. I think firstly, the fact that the British administration in London at the time uh, makes very little kind of geographical distinction between the eastern territories of Australia and then the different island groups in the Pacific, places like New Zealand, places like New Guinea, Fiji. Um, and they consider these places very similar to WA or Tasmania, really. It's all part of um, you know, what we today uh, or what uh, people today would call our own backyard. Um, but it was mainly driven, I think, by the, um, the interests of the ruling classes in the various eastern states. So New South Wales uh, was a trading outpost and uh, really uh, was looking for opportunities uh, to trade in the region and sometimes was you know, not really too uh, fussed about which power would set up shop um, in, in different uh, island groups. Victoria, on the other hand, particularly after the gold rush, was uh, you know very capital rich, uh, filled with kind of companies and kind of entrepreneurs and businessmen who were looking for outlets for investment and places where they could um, you know expand and plant down um, opportunities to make profit. And Queensland uh, was really kind of dominated by sugar plantations, so their main motivation at times was just kind of looking for new sources of, of cheap labor uh, in the nearby regions. But despite having kind of uh, somewhat different interests um, for the different capitalist class in the different states, uh, all of them basically agreed that their interests uh, were would be served by greater control over their immediate uh, region. And they basically agitated as much, particularly in the newspapers uh, that they owned. And publications as early as 1820 started to, um, you know, talk about con increasing their control in the region. And it's probably one of the most famous of these is um, in 1869, the Melbourne Age argued that since uh, England can rule India, why should not Victoria make the experiment of trying to rule Fiji? And there were all sorts of meetings that were put on in places like the Sydney Stock Exchange in 1875, where they would uh, basically have meetings to talk about what they wanted to do in the Pacific region. And the Sydney Morning Herald gives an account of one of these meetings where they basically say it was attended by, and I quote, most of the leading men uh, connected with trade and commerce in the city. But while they had these ambitions, they really lacked the means to do it themselves. And they kept trying to induce uh, Britain in particular um, to really kind of carry a lot of this out themselves. Uh, on, on behalf of the of the ruling classes in the eastern states. So uh, they wanted to have yeah, Britain annex different island groups, uh, but Britain, on the other hand, uh, felt that they had bigger fish to fry because they were more focused on places like India um, and then later in Egypt. And some of this stuff really, um, and some of these dynamics really start to uh, play out um, in, a, in a couple of instances. So the, one of the earliest ones is really the um, kind of push into New Zealand. And there had been like sealers and traders from New South Wales who had gone into New Zealand from very uh, late in the 18th century. Um, and the growing presence there has le had led to abuses and violence um, against uh, native Maoris uh, uh, from the settlers who had arrived. And as uh, native Maoris started to retaliate, there was a growing uh, call for a British military presence in New Zealand to protect um, the New South Wales uh, kind of settlers who had arrived. Um, and this kind of all came to fruition when from 1839, George Gibbs, who's at the time the the governor of New South Wales is made the governor of New Zealand. And after the Treaty of Waitangi, the, there's a whole period that ensues uh, called the Land Wars, which is essentially like indigenous resistance against, um, you know, the colonization of their lands where uh, troops are sent from New South Wales uh, to basically put down uh, the resistance. And they ended up massacring over 2,700 Maoris. But really, it's it's the middle of the century where all this stuff really starts to kick off. So there's the growing presence of rival powers such as Germany, France, 
the Dutch and the United States. Um, in, uh, and this creates a real urgency um, as far as Australia's Pacific expansion is concerned. So when the French uh, colonized New Caledonia in 1853, there's a new um, interest in the New Hebrides, which we today know as Vanuatu. And so in, throughout the 1860s, like Australian settlers uh, flood into Vanuatu uh, and many arrive to set up cotton plantations because the American Civil War is going on um, and there's now an international shortage of cotton. Um, and so that's like the crop that first uh, becomes, uh, you know, the ta- like the project in Vanuatu. But very soon that moves on to things like cocoa beans, uh, bananas, coconuts. And then probably the thing that people might know about is the slave trade that Australia kicks off. So mm. in 1863, uh Australia establishes what's called blackbirding, which is essentially the, uh, the slave trade that operates uh, in the Pacific up till 1901, where they essentially ended up kidnapping over 62,000 people uh, from over 80 different islands in Vanuatu. Um, and they're taken to work on plantations in many uh, in different Pacific Island countries, but as well as in Queensland. And this has a massive impact on a whole bunch of uh, the islands, where, which essentially have their, you know, almost their entire male populations taken away and the, the impact that has on, on village life. And there's still kind of, uh, you know, reverberations from that. There's, so there's so many families that um, ended up being separated where there are people still searching for um, their long lost, um, yeah, long lost family as a result of this process. And it also still has a, has a, has a, an ongoing impact in the culture um, in places like Tana, which is one of the islands in Vanuatu, where they have a song, and and part of the exit of the song, uh, and I'm going to quote it now, is they recall back to the old times, bad treatment, low wages, small food and water, hard labour, foreign language. So they said, watch out for Australia. Mm. Recently, when Scott Morrison said, Oh, well, we're lucky in Australia we have no history of slavery in reference mm-hmm. to the Black Lives Matter in the US movement, um, you know, um, pushing for reparations around slavery. And everyone just went, wait a second, are you, mm. are you completely whitewashing history, of course? Uh, it's a tradition of the Australian ruling class and politicians to do that. But, yeah, um, Red Flag newspaper, I should say, has a really excellent article um relating to this black blackbirding as it's known but yeah the brutal slave trade um that people should check out i'll put the link in the in the episode notes so Mm. yeah it's incredible really that this is a history that few people know about australia Mm. can i add there's a there's so much in we're, we're sort of only halfway through i guess this long uh um uh explanation that Vanille's giving us and there's so much in there I'm, I'm wondering if it's worth just sort of thinking about um you know summing this up so Vanille would you say it's sort of in terms of that period you're talking about uh there's in the middle of the 1800s there's you know a few things going on in Australia you know, Australia has been colonized by the British you know there's the genocide the disposition all of that's happening and then in the middle of the uh, 19th century you have a few things that kind of trigger this there's you know there's sort of the gold rush there's, you know, which increases the wealth, the wealth of the colony here. Uh, there's, would you say, the end of transportation maybe is part of this kind of one of the factors in the mix here too. And then there's the growing presence of those um, imperial rivals from Europe, Germany, and so on. Uh, and that all of this kind of plays into this picture of the, this kind of emergence of a new, you know, wannabe imperial power in the form of Australia. Is that sort of how you would sum it up? Yeah, definitely. I think the pres- the growing presence of the rival powers is really um, one of the key motivators uh, here. Um, and uh, that's really kind of like, yeah, despite the different kind of interests that the different states have, it's really what kind of creates a greater sense of urgency and a greater sense of like needing to, to intervene mm-hmm. into these places. Um, and that also, yeah, is very much the case of what happens um, in Fiji as well. So um, like Fiji was another country where like um, after the 18... 18- Three after um, the civil war starts to break out, um, there's a flood of settlers into there um, throughout the 1860s. And it's not just uh, from New South Wales, it's also from the United States. There's a whole American presence that starts to pop up there. But really, uh, the first land seizures and the first major land seizure, I would argue, in places like Fiji um, happens at the behest of um, 
of really um, a business, uh, like businesses uh, in Melbourne, and particularly a, a company called the Polynesia Company, which was established by whole groups of uh, entrepreneurs based in Victoria. And two of their um, two of their representatives, uh, people by the name of William Brewer and John L. Evans, turn up in Fiji and concoct this plan to essentially uh, seize over two hundred thousand acres of land by um, approaching a Fijian chief who uh, the the U.S. Uh, the U.S. state at the time or the U.S. presence in Fiji is trying to chase up for unpaid debts and basically say to him, well, we'll give you protection, we'll pay we'll pay off your debts, but you have to sign over 200,000 acres of land to us. And that's really uh, the basis on which the land that's now the capital of Fiji, Suva, is actually ceded, uh, three, taken under what's called British control at the time. But really, this entire plan is pushed by, um, by businesses uh, um, in Victoria wanting to essentially yeah, um, set up shop in Fiji. And so this basically starts to affect everything. So the earliest government structures that get set up are all about, um, are all about, uh, yeah, like uh, settling disputes really between white settlers, whether they're from uh, New South Wales or whether they're from uh, the United States. And they start to appoint uh, various Fijian chiefs as like the ceremonial figureheads of these governments because partially they realize they can't operate like a full-blown colonial occupation in Fiji. Like that's just impractical because they can't really get the military backing to do it. So they realize that alliances between um, yeah, white settlers and uh, local chiefs is really an important part of how they're going to like rule, rule this territory. Um, and then as a result of this whole kind of ongoing process, there's basically just like ongoing seizures of land uh, by settlers. There's violence against uh, the indigenous population. They also start to, um, white settlers start to organize themselves into white supremacist bands. So there's actually a chapter of the KKK that gets set up in Fiji by white settlers, um, basically wanting to protect their plantations from um, indigenous Fijians who are just absolutely fed up with it. And it's really like going back to the thing about the the role of the rival powers, um, it's not really until there's a real uh, threat of like uh, American or Dutch or French annexation that Britain finally steps in um, in 1874 to basically properly annex Fiji. Um, and this leads to a whole range of other um, uh, other problems as well. So. There's a massive measles outbreak that's, uh, that uh, sweeps the country after it's knowingly brought back to Fiji from Sydney in 1875, and this essentially wipes out one-third of the population of the island as a result of it. There's, uh, there's growing anger amongst Indigenous Fijians who then basically uh, rise up uh, or try to rise up against, uh, against the settler presence, and uh, the, Austra- the Australian section of the Royal Navy is sent to crush uh, this uprising alongside some of the uh, indigenous Fijian forces allied to various chiefs and uh, and the white supremacist organizations. And that's the early history, but this is really what lays the basis for like continued Australian domination of the country. So Australian companies have dominated Fiji for much of really the past century and a half. So that's including you know trading companies like Burns Phillips and Morris Hedstrom, it includes uh, Westpac and ANZ dominating the banking sector. It includes Qantas dominating aviation and having, uh, you know, a huge stake in uh, Fijian Airways, and also a company uh, by the name of CSR, which you might see on your um, on your uh, supermarket shelves because it's Colonial Sugar Refinery. They basically um, stepped into Fiji when uh, sugar became one of its main export commodities. And uh, as part of uh, their sugar um, plantations, they imported 60,000 indentured Indian laborers um, uh, as part of Britain's kind of indentured slave trade. Um, and that's why, you know, Indians basically become a huge portion of Fiji's population. That's basically kind of the story of how probably my ancestors uh, wound up in Fiji as well. Uh, but it also kind of leads to a whole bunch of political instability because uh, you've got basically uh, the colonial powers starting to stoke divisions between native Fijians and uh, and the Indians who've been brought there as laborers to try and basically, um, you know, split them up against each other, make it easier to, to rule both of them. And Australia also then directly intervenes into a whole bunch of like industrial really, industrial matters in Fiji as well. So they send warships there to crush a public sector strike in 1920. So that's, again, you know, it's it's a, it's, there's a lot going on there, but it's really just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, what Australia has done in places like Fiji. Mm-hmm. Um, and just just finally, Papua New Guinea, I think, is probably the clearest and most explicit example of it's not just about direct profits that can be made in these countries, even though Queensland in particular wanted like cheap labor from Papua New Guinea. Um, it was really uh, about the fact that um, Germany had a stake um, in the island of New Guinea and um, 
And they were really concerned about that. So in 1875, the Melbourne Daily Telegraph really just spells this out and says, there's no promise of immediate wealth in New Guinea. Um, and that we, even though we don't want the island ourselves, we do want very much that no one else shall have it. So mm. it's really, um, that's the kind of, uh, what they're, um, what they're most concerned about. And that's why Britain finally backs, um, annexation, um, in the 1880s. And today, like that region is still very key for Australian imperialism because it's, uh, home to some vital shipping lanes that pass through the northern, uh, the north of Australia. Um, and it's, it's really why there's a whole bunch of military bases and other, um, and other kind of, projects in that in that region of the world yeah that the history of fiji that is is super fascinating i mean and it sort of does um sum up in many ways australian imperialism in the pacific the the case study of fiji in a way i mean even when you introduce um the polynesia company as coming out of melbourne with people in you know trying to establish business interests kind of sums up <laughs> that capitalist drive to find places to exploit not just the natural resources but also um, the population through free labour, indentured labour, but also just ordinary exploited workers. Um, and then the fact that the Australian military can be depended on to come and defend um, the bosses basically in all of these places. Um Okay, well, let's jump into the 20th century because clearly World War I is this um, key moment in imperialist history internationally and we know about we have a very distorted kind of picture of Australia's role in World War I and what that was like and people should listen to our previous episode with Rob Bollard on the conscription, anti-conscription movement and some of the experiences of Australian um, uh, conscripts in the First World War. But we also have this myth about invading Turkey um, and Australian troops' role in that. Um, so what was the perspective, I mean, briefly, we could have a whole episode on this, around Australia's role in World War I and this, and this regional imperialism? Well, to put it briefly, um, World War One was basically seen as an opportunity for further expansion. And the, there was an editorial in the Melbourne Age uh, in 1914 that basically, um, like, really summed it up. They said, uh, we have long since realized that we have a Pacific Ocean destiny. By virtue of the European war, an unexpected path has been opened to the furtherance of our ambition to lay down the foundations of a solid Australian sub-empire in the Pacific Ocean. So... I think, yeah, in a nutshell, that one, uh, that one quote from that editorial really sums up um, how they kind of saw it. And so, yeah, World War One is really one of the times where, you know, a whole bunch of other countries fall uh, either completely under Australian control or um, increase or like Australia increases their presence in it. So um, Nauru is probably uh, one of the one of the main ones. So it's captured from the Germans in 1914. And then uh, from then onwards, the country is just absolutely devastated by Australia's presence there. So there's an influenza outbreak in 1920 that just kills one fifth of the entire population of the island. Um, and really one of the reasons why Nauru is so important is because it sits on these massive or sat on these massive phosphate deposits. Um, and I say sat because throughout the 20th century, it, the entire island is basically just completely um, hollowed out by the intense mining um, of phosphate um, for use as fertilizer. Um, and to the point where by, by 1990, it's considered to be completely uninhabitable. Um, and uh, after the this phosphate runs out, basically, the island just falls into complete economic collapse. And this presents yet another opportunity for Australia, who then kind of like steps in and uses kind of desperation that Nauruans are, um, are feeling to really just implant itself more and more in terms of uh, yeah, control over Nauru's economy, its state. Um, and 2001, like they set up a, a, like an understanding to open uh, an immigration detention center um, on the island as part of, uh, yeah, as part of that deal. I mean, that uh, immigration detention center, of course, remains open to this very day, um, even though it was uh, temporarily closed and then reopened uh, by the, the Gillard government in 2012, I believe. Also uninhabitable. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then there's also the whole history of uh, yeah, Papua New Guinea is also captured in that period. And we could, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to say about PNG as well. But, you know, it wasn't... Uh, 
it's, it's often portrayed, particularly because of like the whole myth of Kokoda that like, uh, you know, Australia's presence in the re- in this country was very much welcomed, which is not the case at all. Like the um, the Australian rule within uh, PNG in the particularly in the earliest part of the 20th century was very brutal, uh, very much characterized by, um, you know, like very heavy handed uh, police and military presence, uh, like basically um, crushing any resistance and the, you know, basically conscripting uh, native Papuans to basically carry wounded Australian soldiers in World War II. And if they refused, they were basically beaten and tortured. Um, Their villages were essentially ended up being devastated and they were still refused compensation even after the war. So, yeah, it's, it's basically devastation as far as the eye can see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then we have World War Two, which is you know the biggest devastation that's happened um, in capitalism so far, and that shifts imperialism internationally and again in Australia, and um, because you start to have the breakdown of the British Empire basically. So what what um, and I guess it's another opportunity if you like. For Australian imperialism, what starts to happen then? Well, it's opportunities, but also it poses a whole bunch of challenges for um, the Australian ruling class because the decline of the British Empire makes it harder for Australia to kind of like really maintain the status quo that it's had in the Pacific. And at this period as well, like immediately following World War II, you've got independence movements in places, particularly like in India and Indonesia. And so the Australian ruling class starts to see that, uh, you know, they could see the way the wind is blowing and they have to kind of switch tact in terms of what their power in the region starts to look like. So um, there's, they start to support really um, independence uh, by various different countries in this region, but it's not really genuine independence because they kind of set up a whole bunch of different ways in which they can maintain uh, control uh, of of various countries. And so, you know, it might be called, uh, or the term that's used for this is neocolonialism, but uh, basically, it's about yeah, just setting up all these structures of control. So in Papua New Guinea, uh, PNG basically gains independence in 1975, but really from 1949 onwards, the basis is being laid for ongoing Australian control. So um, at the time, there was a, a department called the Department for External Territories, uh, which tells you a lot about um, Australian imperialism in and of itself, the fact that this department existed. Mm. And today, its, uh, its, its successor department is the Department of Foreign Affairs. But Basically, this department uh, exercised massive amounts of control over not just the PNG itself, but also what the constitution would look like post-independence. So they um, wrote it in such a way that like the com- the colonial administrators and high commissioners from Australia would still um, have powers to like nominate and uh, really appoint people into you know high-powered executive positions uh, within the PNG government. And, uh, you know, since uh, that country did gain independence, there's just been ongoing um, presence by Australian companies, um, you know, taking advantage of this setup in the region. So one of the most notorious examples is uh, Australian mining company Rio Tinto, who basically operated a whole bunch of different things in the country, including uh, the Panguna uh, copper and gold mine in Bougainville. And earlier this year, there was a report that came out by the Human Rights Law Centre that basically uh, accused Rio Tinto of human rights violations due to the poisoning of waters um, and the local pollution that was caused by the mine at the time. Um, and there's yeah, a whole bunch of agreements that come in in the early 2000s that just kind of parachutes Australian officials into high-ranking positions throughout the PNG government. And, and this is just kind of what, what it really looks like. Mm. And... Even, even if it's not kind of like having uh, having their tentacles directly into state structures, the other way in which um, uh, Australia maintains control in this region is really through um, things like foreign aid. So, you know, in 20, so in the year of 2019 to 2020, there's the budget for foreign aid uh, in the Pacific is $1.4 billion plus an addition $2 billion for infrastructure. And sometimes these are in the form of loans. Um, other times it's in the form of grants. But really, it's always about political leverage because uh, these countries, you know, which Australia plays a role in impoverishing, are then desperate for financial assistance. And sometimes those have very, very um, harsh strings attached. But even when there's no strings attached, the mere threat that those grants can be revoked by the Australian government at any time really gives Canberra um, additional muscle when it kind of gets, you know, when it's dictating the terms of what's going on in these countries. And I think that's really why Australia is very concerned and alarmed by China's infrastructure spending in the region, because they know from their own experience that spending money on Pacific Island countries is not about charity, it's about control. Mm. Mm-hmm. And people talk and- about that as a kind of soft imperialism Um and with China in particular, yeah, there's definitely a layer of the Australian ruling class that's 
freaked out by the amount of money that China is spending in the Pacific region. Definitely has been, you know, the subject of a lot of discussion. Liam, I, I cut you off slightly. Yeah, 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 that's okay. I was, I mean, the, yeah, the stuff around, I, I didn't, I'm hesitant to do this because the, the discussion around, you know, infrastructure and foreign aid and all that sort of stuff, I think is an important kind of political point to make. Um, but I just wanted to add one more thing about in terms of the sort of brute force of the Australian jackboot in the Pacific. Uh, one of the things um, that, that we've skipped over here is the particular thing about what happened in Nauru after World War II um, because the, uh, the Australia lost the colony during World War II to the Japanese, um, but they uh, it had been, um, you know, this colony that Australia had been using indentured Chinese um, the people who were, you know, the workers who were being forced to strip the phosphate were these indentured Chinese labourers. And uh, after World War II, when Australia recolonised, you know, took that back from Japan, um, the, they reimposed these indentured, you know, indenture on these Chinese workers uh, who resisted in, you know, ex- explosive scale. Um, it, at one point, they actually took over the island and drove out all the, the officials. Uh, and if I said to you that, that the Chifley Labor government in Australia had sent in troops to crush a miners' strike. You'd probably be thinking I'm talking about the coal miners' strike of 1949. In fact, that was the second time. And more people should know that in 1948, the Chifley government sent 1,500 troops to put down uh, a, a rebellion of these Chinese miners on Nauru. Uh, and then nine, through the 1950s, um, the Menzies government just turned it into a like a fortress, you know, with machine guns and 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 uh, gas and all sorts of things, mm. you know, like a military garrison uh, designed to prevent any uh, further rebellions by the Chinese miners there. Uh, a lot of this is covered in a Marxist Left Review article I wrote. If people would like to go back and read about the radical history of Chinese labour in Australia, it's in that article. You definitely Marxism. should, yeah. In terms of uh, uh, some of the more controversial elements of this discussion um, around what is Australia's role in the region. There will be people who think there have been times where maybe Australian interventions have been necessary on the right side of a particular dispute. And I think East Timor is, has been one of those, uh, probably the most controversial uh, on the left even, around whether Australia should have intervened. What's your take on Australia's track record in the in in terms of you know actually trying to support democratic movements or that idea of you know supporting freedom and democracy kind of um, that's part of this? Well, I don't think Australia ever has really um, supported genuine freedom and democracy for people in the Pacific because it runs contrary to the interests of um, Australian capital. And I think yeah, you can definitely see that. Um, in the history of the past uh, 50 years, um, particularly yeah, with you know, places like Indonesia and East Timor. Well, it was in 1965 that Australia backed a military coup um, against the Sukarno government in Indonesia and supported basically, yeah, the Suharto uh, military dictatorship, which killed over a half a million people. Um, and insofar as East Timor, well, East Timor was controlled by Portugal until the fall of the Portuguese dictator um, in 1974 as a result of a revolution there. Um, and as the as the East Timorese uh, independence movement was gaining strength, the the Whitlam government, the Whitlam Labor government, so it's good that uh, uh, Liam referenced the role of Labor governments there. Um, the Whitlam Labor government essentially looked the other way as Suharto invaded uh, East Timor and killed uh, more than two hundred thousand people. Um, and the government's interests were pretty uh, pretty explicit. So in a letter from the uh, Australian ambassador in Jakarta um, to the Whitlam government, they basically said. Um, you know, Australia's interests uh, could be more readily negotiated with Indonesia um, than with Portugal or an independent East Timor. And they, this is a very, like, um, honest thing that was then said, which uh, was, I know I'm recommending a pragmatic rather than a principled stand, but that is what national interest and foreign policy um, is all about. And in exchange for looking the other way, um, uh, Australia was essentially given access to the oil in the in the Timor Sea um, as part of in exchange for recognizing um, East Timor as being part of Indonesia in 78. And then this treaty was finalized uh, with Indonesia by the Hawke Labor government in 89. Um, and so I think that's the context for then when we talk about um, like the, um, the East Timorese uh, independence movement that rises again in the late 1990s. 
Um, the Howard government basically parroted all that stuff again, and Howard sent a letter to the Indonesian president in 1998 saying, it has been a long-standing Australian position that the interests of uh, Australia, Indonesia, and East Timor are best served by East Timor remaining part of Indonesia. So the Australian government very clear that they do not support um, independence uh, for East Timor. Um, and they knew about uh, the Indonesian government essentially planning massacres um, if the August 1999 referendum uh, passed. But instead, they basically worked uh, with the US to ensure that the UN didn't interfere with um, any of Indonesia's military operations. And Howard essentially waited until the worst of the massacres uh, had taken place and then used this as a pretext for invasion. And you only need to look at the what's happened uh, in uh, East Timor since uh, since the intervention to realize that that intervention played no uh, positive role for the people of East Timor. So Australia spent $100 million over the next few years in military aid to East Timor, but in the decade following, it made billions in oil revenue from the country. And um, some of the uh, East Timorese freedom activists uh, once called Australia, it called East Timor the biggest donor to Australia. And Australia's also like backed harsh IMF uh, programs in East Timor, making it essentially one of the poorest countries in the region. Like a third of the country dies before 40. There's uh, two thirds of homes lack electricity and, and many lack uh, clean drinking water. And again, in 2006, Australia backed uh, a coup against a democratically elected government in East Timor again uh, that was carried out by Australian uh, trained soldiers. It sent more troops there and uh, and still maintains a military base um, in Dili, which is the capital of East Timor. Um, and uh, like uh, there's then the uprising uh, in in Bougainville, uh, which was uh, you know in 1989 basically the locals of Bougainville in Papua New Guinea uh, rose up and shut down, so forced the shutdown of uh, Rio Tinto's uh, mine that I mentioned earlier, and it sparked off a decades long independence struggle. And Australia um, basically supplied the Papua New Guinean government with attack helicopters and armed the Papua New Guinea army um, in its suppression of the independence struggle. Um, and this resulted in somewhere between fifteen to 20,000 Bougainvilleans being killed. And, and then there was, like, further to that, they then kind of invaded the Solomon Islands in 2003. Um, they sent 2,500 troops and police in there. In addition to the armed forces that they sent in, they also sent in 130, um, basically, uh, economists, development assistance specialists, and budget advisors, um, and basically inserted themselves into various key posts within law enforcement, within finance, and other government de departments. And again, 2006 is like a is like a year of Australia interfering with democracy in the middle three um in um, in the Pacific, because uh, there were this program uh, called Ramsey was bolstered yet again to put down pro-democracy protests in the Solomon Islands, um, and they locked up uh, members of parliament, uh, and they were there to just kind of like defend the government that existed. Again, same thing happens in Tonga in the same year. They put down a pro-democracy movement and defend the Tongan monarchy in 2006. Australian soldiers are sent to do that. And at the same time in 2006, there's a military coup um, that takes place in Fiji, uh, which is how Frank Bainimarama, the current prime minister, comes into um, comes into power, and he basically, uh, you know, like basically installs a dictatorship in Fiji, and Australian businesses uh, very quickly warm to him because you know it imposes very harsh restrictions um, on trade unions and working conditions in the country. Qantas and uh, Westpac and ANZ and a whole bunch of other companies benefit very strongly out of pro-business legislation that's written um, by the new Fijian regime in 2011. Yet at the same time, uh, Fiji and pro-democracy activists flee the country because, yeah, journalists and activists and trade unionists are being locked up by the regime. Um, and then they find themselves uh, locked up in Australia's detention centres. Um, so that's happened to a number of pro-democracy activists from Fiji. And tragically, in September of 2010, uh, Joseph Rauluni, uh, who's one of these activists, committed suicide by jumping off the roof of the Villawood Detention Centre. So um, there's just no ground whatsoever to the idea that Australia's um, presence in the region is about supporting freedom and democracy. Absolutely none. Mm. Seems pretty convincing to me. Um, well, we should say something about China before we kind of draw some conclusions from all of this, and, and I think people can quite easily draw their own conclusions. But, um, you know, the the issue that we touched on before about um, Chinese aid money, it's now in the region of $1.7 billion between 2006 and 2014 from China to these Pacific Island countries, which is the thing that has got Australia worried. What What's your perspective on Australia's position in the region in relation to China? Well, yeah, uh, 
as you said, uh, Australia's alarmed because it's worried about losing control over the region. And really, um, you know, when you consider that it's spent an entire century and a half, like really um, trying to implant itself and kind of, um, uh, you know, engineer uh, the politics and kind of the, uh, the yeah, the reality of the Pacific to suit the interests of Australian capitalism, they don't really want to give that up that easily. And so they're caught in this bind between um, yeah, China being their major trading partner, but really Australian power in the region being underwritten by the United States alliance. Um, and so they're trying uh, you know, whatever they can to try to rebolster their position. So um, what's happened in the past couple of years is uh, Australia re- like trying to rebuild its relationships with Pacific Island countries. And you know, there was the spat at last year's Pacific Island Forum about uh, climate change. Uh, but that really doesn't give you the whole picture because uh, Australia has very much been trying to, to yeah to to yeah to rebuild these relationships. So there was a an agreement signed with the Fijian government in early two thousand and nine called the Vivali Agreement, uh, which basically just kind of uh, opens up the trade between the two countries again. It guarantees funding to some of the military bases um, in Nandi. It gives over two billion dollars to the Fijian Navy um, over the course of thirty years, and uh, also promises like border force officials, uh, you know, fresh from uh, locking up and torturing refugees in Australia, uh, to go down to to Fiji and to help, uh, you know, give them training um, in enforcing their borders as well. And then, yeah, there's all sorts of like other kind of announcements, like uh, you know, that the Morrison government made at the end of last year. So Fiji competing, competing in the rugby league and removing restrictions on the tra- um, trade of kava from. Fiji and Vanuatu. And now with COVID, um, you know, China's really been trying to use, um, you know, the assistance that it can provide to Pacific Island nations as another way to like, um, you know, push forward in the region again. So um, Morrison's been also responding to that. So they're talking about um, providing the COVID vaccine to the Pacific Islands, um, Australia paying for that. They're also talking about um, including uh, Fiji and other Pacific Island countries um, into, uh, yeah, into the travel bubble that might open up between Australia and New Zealand. Um, and that's kind of some of the more like diplomatic uh, trade negotiation stuff. But also um, the Australian government is very much ramping up its military spending as well. So there's the announcement that they are going to spend $270 billion more on the military um, over the next few years. They, you know, are like arming, uh, you know, getting new equipment, new submarines, um, all sorts of uh, access to surveillance from its allies. And that's really also about, you know, basically covering all of its, uh, to give the pun, covering all of its bases in the Pacific um, to to really try and hold on to control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that combination I think is important to realise that, you know, people might oppose uh, additional spending on the military but support these kind of um, packages that are dressed up as aid but it's really part of exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we've been trying to, outline here in terms of Australia's regional imperialist interests. So overall then, you know, for socialists, um, people listening to this podcast who are interested in socialist politics and want to figure out kind of what we um, conclude from all of these examples from history and ongoing um, actions of the Australian government and the Australian military, what would you pull out as some of the key lessons from all of this? Well, despite the, the the best efforts at kind of creating a mythology and a fiction around like the role that Australia plays in the Pacific, I think one of the main lessons is that our government isn't, pardon me, isn't any better than uh, any other brutal capitalist government in the world um, and that the interventions it carries out in this region aren't any more noble. Our government and the, the wealthy in Australia don't give a damn about ordinary people in this country and they certainly don't give a damn about ordinary people uh, in the Pacific. And It's only ever been about bolstering um, their interests, whether it's the interests of Australian corporations or the interests of Australian capitalism in uh, you know, maintaining control against its, its rivals. Um, so I think being a socialist is not about picking which ruling class to back. It's about backing the international working class against the ruling classes of every country, especially our own country. So we have more in common uh, with working class people in the Pacific. We have more in common with working class people in China. We have more in common with working class people in the United States than we have uh, in common with any of um, any of their governments or any of their um, their you know military apparatuses. And that means I think we have to oppose every single war that our rulers pursue, no matter how noble they claim that their intentions are. And I think we have a century and a half of destruction, plunder, and immiseration in the Pacific as as proof of that. 
And I think this fiction of uh, no, of nobility uh, of the nobility of Australia's political and military influence, I think, is peddled by all major parties who really want to run the Australian state, and thus, you know, who have uh, to basically also run uh, the Australian imperialist state as part of that. And I think we've gone through, yeah, that definitely includes the Liberals. We've gone through some of the history of how the Labor Party has been part of that as well. But I think it's worth saying that also some of this logic applies to parties like the Greens. Um, who, you know, their criticism of uh, some of Australia's uh, intervention into foreign wars has just been the fact that, oh, this is all about being dragged into wars by America, or this hasn't gone through the, you know, there hasn't been a proper vote in Parliament before Australia's involved itself in wars. I mean, I personally don't care if the right bureaucratic votes are taken before, you know, mass slaughter and destruction is carried out against people all over the world. Like, I'm against every war. That's the position that socialists should have. Um, And I think more and more as imperial tensions mount between the US and China, and as Australia finds its own influence in the region being jeopardized, we're going to be faced again with arguments for war um, and why the next war is going to be necessary or it's going to be noble or it's going to be in the interests uh, of uh, our Pacific family that we're supposedly taking care of. And I think the task of socialists uh, today is to be clear on this history and to constantly wage an argument that the main enemy that we have um, is at home and that we have no interest in any of the wars or any of the foreign interference that any government carries out. Mm. Well, that was a pretty clear conclusion, I think. Liam, did you want to add anything? Uh, no, I agree that that's a <laughs> very clear conclusion. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's so much more we could say. Um, you know, I, the only thing I would have, I would encourage people who are listening to to go, to go and have a look at our uh, red flag paper and our Marxist Left Review, um, and also check out the uh, program for the schedule for the the upcoming Marxism 2021 conference, because I'm sure there'll be plenty of discussion. Uh, on these topics and um you know gra- grappling with how to understand both modern imperialism and you know the history of it in in the region and Australia's role and and yeah and with the discussions around china and the biden presidency kind of proclaiming its intention to make america kind of proactive again on the international sphere like these discussions are not going away and i think yeah if if you have, if you need a reminder of the brutality, like read the Afghan files, read the Brereton report, um, mm-hmm. and continue to read Red Flag newspaper and listen to this podcast. And please, if you found this interesting, um, this discussion and its content that you know that you can't really find in other places, then do share this episode with people you know who might be interested. Share on your social media and review the podcast so that more people can um, find their way to Red Flag Radio. So thank you so much, Vanille, for coming back and being a fr- friend of the show. Yes, I've finally gotten my friend of the show title. I'm really excited about this. Thanks for having me. Red Flag Radio, friend of the show, merch. Um, <laughs> if anybody, if any of our listeners want to uh, design anything for us, we're more than open to suggestions. So, yeah, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>